If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn over to the book of Proverbs chapter 12. As you know, we have been uh, coming through the book of Proverbs, working our way through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, it's been an incredible study. The book of Proverbs, as I told you before we started, is always one of my favorite books in the Bible. If there was any one book that I wish I could just get the, in my mind as total recall, that I could always recall the principles, uh, it would be the book of Proverbs. I believe the book of Proverbs is the core value system of the Bible and that everything else in the Bible comes back to the Proverbs that are found uh, in there. And uh, last week we took a study out of uh, verses 1 and 2. And we've been doing a lot of word studies, and I've been talking about the value of word studies, and we looked at the word instruction and instructions of the Father. Uh, Building uh, our, as we saw how the word really uh, defines itself, inner structure. Uh, defining, building our inner structure in our lives that comes from the instructions of the Father through the Word of God. And in verse 1, uh, it says, and we talked about this last week, whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge. Now, it's kind of hard just to preach one verse one week and then move into the next verse the next week because they're all kind of interconnected. So I want to take a few minutes and I'm going to talk about as we move into uh, verse 3, I want to talk to you, Moan, about the love of learning. You know, when God made man, God put into man the desire, the, uh, the ability to want to, to know, to explore, uh, to learn about things. He put that instinct into man as when he made man. I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it in this light or not, but all civilizations' advancements. Uh, has been simply based on that simple concept, man's desire to have knowledge and to take that knowledge and develop it and to explore it. Uh, Every invention that we have today, every modern convenience that you have, from electricity to your washing machine to all of the things, uh, came into being because somebody wanted to pursue something to know more about it. Samuel Morris started to telegraph and invented the telegraph way back in the 1800s, from which everything that we have in communications come today. Thomas Edison. Uh, Thomas Edison was given credit for uh, developing the first light bulb. He was an incredible individual. I read one time when I read his autobiography, and everybody had to read it because he was an incredible uh, mind toward wanting to understand things. And uh, somebody said... I hear that you failed 1,000 times. You had 1,000 failures before you finally got the light bulb to work. He looked at the guy and he said, well, I don't look at those as 1,000 failures. I look at that as just 1,000 ways not to build a light bulb. See, the difference is he always was looking for the truth. Marconi developed radio that we have today. The Wright brothers, you get on a, you get on a, uh, a 747 or get on a plane today and fly across the country or around the world, and you never think about Kitty Hawk down there, those two little guys uh, who had a bicycle shop making the first plane that flew for just uh, a couple of seconds and where it went from there. All because somebody wanted to take that concept and would not rest till they developed it. Lewis and Clark. We're living right in the area where at one time, uh, about 200 and some years ago, a a couple of guys named Lewis and Clark explored this whole country, mapped the whole country. They were looking for a passageway from east to west to get to China. 
and they thought that uh, there was a natural land bridge there. Of course, there wasn't, uh, but uh, they were incredible in their search. How about the space program? Most of you don't remember that in the the mid or late 1950s, we and the Russians were in a space race. We sent, uh, they sent up the first uh, satellite. It was called Sputnik. And Sputnik was no bigger than probably a basketball. That was the first satellite. We countered and sent one up that was, uh, you know, about the same size. And the race went on. Look where it went from the 60s to now today, 2015, the space station. All because man, man wanted to know. He wanted to learn. He would pursue those things. In 1900, we developed radio waves, which led to TV waves in the 1930s and the 40s, which led to microwaves in the 1960s, which led to infra- infrared rays and all that we have today. Going back in history, you got the Bronze Age that entered into the Iron Age that developed steel, and then all the way down to titanium and aluminum. And, I, you know, we always have a, we always have a, the, the, when we do something stupid or wrong, we always give an oops, you know. My thing, I would have loved to have been in history for, I think, the biggest oops in history when they had bronze swords. And bronze is a fairly soft material, but when it's up against human flesh, it's pretty good. But when some nation developed iron, iron was five times stronger than bronze. And the greatest oops in history is when two guys went to battle and a guy went to cut somebody with his bronze sword and he hit the seal sword and it cut that bronze sword right in half. Oops. He just found out he entered into the Iron Age. Went to steel, titanium, and aluminum. Man has an insatiable appetite to ask why and to know how things work. In the 1800s, we had the Industrial Age. It moved in the 1900s to the uh, uh, to, uh, excuse me, the agricultural age in the 1800s. It moved in the 1900s to the industrial age. And now today we live in what is known as the information age. It's been said that a man today with a newspaper has at disposal more information than a man who lived in the 15th or 12th century would accumulate in all of his life. And it all comes down to man having that inner desire to learn to want to know. And from a Bible standpoint, God did all of that, that desire that he put in man, so man would find God in his pursuit for knowledge and truth. And that was his original intent. He put himself into every creation that he made. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, the invisible things of him are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. So he put himself in it that when man would look up and he would see or he would look at this and study this, that God's Holy Spirit would use that for God to reveal himself. Psalms 19 verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, utter his speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from one end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of the earth, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. And there never was one person, there never was one person who the first time they looked up and saw the heavens, saw the vastness of it, got out someplace where the Milky Way is like a painted streak down the sky. 
that just wasn't in awe of what was out there and wasn't filled with questions of how, why, and who. Many times in our studies, I've given you the three-point process of learning, how that you get knowledge, that's facts, and facts develops into wisdom, that's facts applied. But the missing element is understanding, and understanding is understanding how God fits into the equation. An unsaved man can have knowledge and an unsaved man can have wisdom. But an unsaved man can never have understanding when it comes to the things out there because it all shows, goes back to what God is doing in God's plan. And last week we looked at the word instruction and loving knowledge. And today I want to, in a minute, I want to look at another two key words that go right along with, with last week. Now let me begin by saying this. The real key to the Bible is one single aspect. It has nothing to do in one respect with God or the Bible itself or even the Holy Spirit of God, though they're key ingredients in it at some point. But the real key to the Bible is the single aspect of you and I having a passion to learn it, a love to learn, and everything that we do with the Word of God, a desire to know, to understand, Then at that point, based on our attitude of heart, the Holy Spirit of God takes that and develops it. And boy, you're on to uh, some great things into the Bible. And when it comes to the Bible, real Bible study, it's just a pursuit of truth and knowledge and a love for it. So many people study the Bible, but they don't love the Bible. So many people will spend hours in the Word of God, but there's no love for that book that it, of what it really is to you and what it really means to you. And you'll see that God wrote the Bible to man. He, he wrote it on the same basis that he created everything else. The Bible was written in a way that, uh, that uh, a serious Bible student will continually ask why. Why is this this way? Why did God do it that way? In case you haven't figured it out yet, that's exactly the way I run my Bible study on Thursday night. I learned that 35 years ago, that a key ingredient of helping you develop yourself is to understand and have a place where you can ask questions. Too many churches are always telling you what to believe, telling you what to think, never giving you an opportunity to exercise what God has built into you to say, hey, Bob, why is this? Hey, how come it works this way? I don't see it that way. When a man has fully fixed his heart to the Word of God and it becomes number one in his life and everything runs through the Bible, you'll come to the place in your life where you realize the Bible's always right and we're always wrong. I, 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 I don't ever sit in judgment of the Word of God. I let the Word of God judge me. The final authority in all things of faith and practice then on that basis of your attitude of heart and your love for the pursuit of truth and knowledge, now you can get some serious Bible study done. I talked to you Thursday night and I told you that we were going to talk about serious Bible study today. We're going to talk about a level that a child of God needs to get to where you can really learn some things from God. And I want to show you today how that works. And it will ultimately lead to you getting understanding and seeing God's hand in everything. God has put the Bible together in such a way that some things in the Bible seem to contradict. Did you ever notice that? And yet they don't. Now, here's how it works. And what I'm going to give you today is the basis of of serious Bible study. 
you, you saw it, uh, you saw it uh, an example of it that kind of kind of primed us for uh, this morning, Thursday night, when uh, I think it was Nikki asked that question out of Genesis chapter 48 about uh, the boys, the, uh, the firstborn and the secondborn, and the secondborn getting the blessing over the firstborn, how that didn't look right, because that's not the way it goes. And I showed you an example of that. And the Bible, as you read and you study it, what you begin to do is you look for what doesn't seem to fit with other places in the Bible. This is called contrast. And then you ask God why. You go after it till God makes it clear how they can look like these both saying something different, but yet they are both absolutely correct in your Bible. Now uh, you're way past Bible 101. And the tragedy is that most of God's people never get here. And I'll tell you why that is, because it takes not the Bible, not your relationship with God, not the Holy Spirit of God teaching you, though those are absolutely vital, but first and foremost, it takes you having an absolute love and a passion for that book and wanting to learn it. One time there was a, a young man who lived in a, a, an Asian nation, and there was a great wise man who, who was in his village. He lived up on the hill, and uh, everybody in the village reverenced this man. Everybody wanted to go to him when they had deep problems or questions that they couldn't solve. And the young man watched it all of his life. And by the time he was 18 years old, he had come to the conclusion that in his direction in life, he wanted to be like that wise man. So he went to him one day and he said, uh, uh, he said you know, I, I, I want to submit myself to you. I want to I allow you to take me. I'll, I'll do your chores. I'll fix this. I'll do that. I'll, I'll earn my keep. But I want you to teach me the secrets that you have that I, too, can be as wise as you are and someday be able to deal with people and situations and problems with the wisdom uh, that you have. And uh, the old man thought for a little bit, and he said, well, you know what? He said, uh, that would be fine. He said, tomorrow morning you show up and go home and make your final preparations for leaving home and say your goodbyes, uh, be here at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning and we'll start the pursuit that you're after. Well, the young kid was ecstatic. And he goes home and he says goodbye and he tells everybody that he knows he's going to be the wisest man like this guy and everybody's applauding and think it's the greatest thing. Well, he shows up at 8 o'clock that morning, bag and baggage, ready to go. The old man said, well, put your stuff down here. And he says, I'm going to give you the first lesson in having wisdom and the secrets and the knowledge that I have. He says, come on with me. So the young man said, oh, boy. He got down there, and he took him into a, 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 like a lake that he had behind his house. And he, the old man waded out, and the young old man was taller he was, and he, the old man got out here, and the kid was just about up to here, and he was standing there, and he's saying, wow, this is great. You know, there's some kind of ceremony here that we're going to go through and right before he could he could he could look up and ask what was going next that old man grabbed his nose in his mouth and his head and put him under that water and he held him under there and the kid is screaming and kicking and trying to get out from under that old man's got his foot on him and he just holding him down holding him down and holding him down just about the time that he's ready to die that old man lets him pop to the surface this kid is throwing up, spitting up water, choking. The old man drags him by the collar, puts him down there, and he puts him down there at the, on the land, and the kid is coughing and choking and, and, uh, and having a, uh, you know, a fit. And the old man's just standing there with his arms crossed looking at him. 
That kid jumped up and he said, what are you doing? I came to you. I thought you were the wisest man that ever lived. What kind of stupid stuff is this? I, I've said goodbye to everybody. I was serious. I want to I wanna be like you and have your wisdom. And you're playing some goofy little game with me. I don't get it. The old man looked at him and he said, you know what? You want knowledge? You want wisdom? You want truth? You want to have a life of pursuing truth and knowledge and understanding? Here's the key, kid. When you want truth, when you want knowledge, just like you wanted air when you thought you were going to die, that's the only time you're going to get it. And if you don't have a passion for the things of God, if you don't have a passion for the Word of God, if you don't have a desire inside you that you want that book more than anything else in life, you'll never get there. You'll never get there. Oh, you'll learn some things about the Bible and you'll be a a good person. I'm not saying that, but I'm talking about serious Bible study today. Serious Bible study today. Things like you're reading your Bible in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and it says this. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, you read that, and then you read Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and it says this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, look, they don't match. I mean, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 seems to absolutely contradict Acts chapter 2, verse 38. One says you get the Holy Spirit by being baptized in the name of Jesus. And one says you, get, you just get it by believing who Christ is. And that's how you get saved. They don't fit together. They don't match. Two completely different verses as it appears on the aspect of salvation. And you know what? 100,000 people a month go to hell on those two verses. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So you want to ask yourself. Ask yourself this when you read it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that seems to contradict 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 that says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now see, they don't fit. One says you're sinless, and the other one says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. There's, a prob- There's such a problem with that that you have that. You know what they do? In all the new Bibles, they, they, they don't know what to do with that because it's such a glaring contradiction to them. They've never learned serious Bible study. So the easiest thing to say, it's a mistranslation. And on every new Bible on the market today, they take out the word commit and put in the word practice. See? And that solves their problem. doesn't solve a thing. You want to ask yourself why Mark 16, verses 16 through 18, where it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, that seems to completely contradict what Paul said in First and Second Timothy 4.20 when he says, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus, I left that Mythium, sick. They don't match. 
One place says that you can heal somebody, and then the other place says the greatest healer that ever lived couldn't heal a guy that was sick. You want to ask yourself why Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. You know the story about the ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. Make, make, it makes it almost clear that somebody lost their salvation. Yet 1 John chapter 5, 11, 12, 13 says that you cannot lose your salvation. See the problem you got? That's a complete contradiction, a contrast in the two verses in your Bible. Now you see why people begin to have such a tough time with the Bible? How do you reckon, how do you, how, how do you reckon order? How do you reconcile those passages? But that's how you learn. You ask yourself, why, how, how does this work? Here's one. How did Nicodemus get born again in John chapter 3 when the Holy Spirit of God didn't even come to Acts chapter 1 and 2? And yet we use him as an example of new birth all the time. Ask yourself why they spoke in tongues in Acts, but nobody speaks in tongues after Acts for 1,900 years. And it shows up after 1,900 years in Topeka, Kansas. Now, why is that? I got a better one for you. How in the world did it get from Jerusalem to Topeka? Ask how come in Acts chapter 1 and 2, they're called tongues. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, they're called other tongues. And it's in italics. What happened? Now, you see that? Those are legitimate questions that come up and you look for when you're into serious Bible study. We have a a book back in the bookstore uh, called Problem Text. And it's volume one and volume two. It's probably the least books of all the books we sell. We don't sell many of that. You know why? Because that's some serious stuff, man. Most Christians never get to that level. This is called in 2 Timothy 2.15, the ability to rightly divide the word of truth based on a love of truth and a love of learning. When you love truth, when you love knowledge, when you love instructions, you'll not study the Bible to find mistakes in it because there are none. No, you are asking God to show you, to instruct you, to be able to reconcile both passages that seem to contradict and don't fit by learning how to rightly divide the book. You're asking the question, not how to jam both verses together to make them fit or go to the Greek to explain it away or just to chalk it off as a mistranslation in a faulty version like they do with 1 John 3, 9. No, not at all. You are studying to show thyself approved unto God and letting God through his instructions show you how and why both verses are absolutely correct and mean what they say the way they read even though they appear to contradict. You're asking God to instruct you because you love knowledge and you love truth and you leave the book as God's word completely. You learn through instruction to put both verses in a proper context with the right material to show you the right truth, to teach the right doctrine that God intended it to teach without changing anything. Now that's serious Bible study based on our desire and our passion to pursue knowledge and truth and get instruction from God. Now, 
God put the Bible together that way because he knew men would love that, who, that loved to learn would stay with it and ask till they get the answer, that they would have a passion and a desire. Most people don't know who Edmund Hillary was. Edmund Hillary was the first guy who climbed Mount Everest. Now, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, 30, over 30, uh, right at about 30,000 feet. To give you some kind of point of reference, that's like standing in your backyard and watching a jet fly over that you can't even see the jet body, but you see the contrails coming out of the engine. That's probably about 30,000 feet, standard flight altitude for cross-continental flight, around 30,000 feet. That's really high. Imagine climbing up a mountain to that level at that height. And everybody in the world says, you know what? This mountain is unclimbable. Nobody can climb this mountain. Nobody can do this. No human being can do it. But he had a passion for it. He tried it several times. He worked it out. And finally, in the 1953, he conquered that mountain. When everybody else said it couldn't be done, he got it done. Now, you want the Bible? You go after the Bible just like he went after that mountain. Now, I need to say this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that Bible is likened to being a two-edged sword. And a two-edged sword will cut both ways. God put these things in the Bible in his word uh, to teach us who love to learn. But I want you to understand something. But he also put them in, in his word to snare the ones who hate his word and despise it and don't want to learn it. And one of the most terrible, greatest passages in the Bible is found in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. You don't have it marked in your Bible, you ought to mark it. It's God dealing with the leaders of Israel over them coming to God after they've already rejected the word of God. And he says in verse 1, Then came certain of the elders of Israel came unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up the idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of them at all by them? Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. Now, do you see that? That Bible says if you want a lie to believe, God will give you one. When God gave you a book that he wants you to accept and take it just the way it is, and you come up with the idea, oh, no, no, I'm something better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you reject the clear teaching of the Bible then God will give you the verses, brother, that you need to, that you want to take and you want to believe what you want to believe. He says in verse 7, For every one of the house of Israel, or the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separated himself from me and setteth up his idols in his heart. Notice, the guy is still going to church, the guy is still part of the nation of Israel, but he has separated himself from God. And he setteth up idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his idols before his faith. That means you want to believe what you want to believe no matter what the Bible says. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. 
And I will set my face against that man and will make him a shine and a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people and he shall know that I am the Lord thy God. You know, there's two ways in the Bible to have a personal encounter with God. One of them is to love the book. The other one is to simply not love the book. Hey, you want to believe speaking in tongues and healing uh, and losing your salvation is okay and you want to do it? He'll put the verses in there, 80 of them probably, just to mess you up. You want to believe that you have to get baptized to be saved and go through that whole stupid process? He'll give you plenty of the verses because you rejected the clear teachings on it. Had a guy years ago when I was a youth pastor. His two teenage boys were in my Sunday school class. And he was an animate scholar. Or maybe it was an animus scholar. I'm not sure which it was. He taught at one of the big Bible colleges out here south of town with Calvary Bible College now. And uh, back then too. And uh, I got to say, this guy was an absolute genius. Uh, he, his recall on history was impeccable. Uh, it was incredible. He, he was a great guy as far as being able to, man, he was one of the smartest guys I ever met in my life. And, you know, he's into the Greek and he's into the Hebrew and he's in all that stuff. And, uh, and, and when I came to be the youth pastor, obviously we didn't, we didn't get along very well. But I got to say, he was one of the gentlest, most humble men I've ever met in my life who hated the Word of God. I mean, you see this guy, you think of a guy who hates the Word of God as snarly and fire coming out with horn. No, no, no. This guy was as pleasant and as soft-spoken, and he was as mannerly, and he was as humble as you ever met in your life. But he hated that book. His two boys were in my high school class, and they were struggling with some things. And I was working, trying to get them. And I was getting some progress with, with the one. He come on pretty good, and he got a hold of it. The other one, he struggled. But he was coming in to see me, and I was bringing him through the Bible, showing to give him the principles. And after about three or four months, obviously his dad must have asked him what I was doing, what we were talking about. Now, this kid's got some serious issues, which only the Word of God can fix. So when his dad finds out that I'm teaching him out of that book, you know what he did? He gave him a book out of his library that showed you how that the Word of God was full of mistakes. And so instead of that kid coming in now wanting to fix his life, the kid comes in with a book saying, my dad gave me this, and I want to ask you some questions about that Bible. He completely lost the sense of where he was going, and now he wanted to find fault with the Word of God, just like his daddy did. And that kid today is gone, man. His daddy's a mess, gone. He bounced around all over the place. But that's the way it works, you see. Now, this is the number one reason why men today can't learn anything from God and the Bible. Other books, sure. But the Bible, no. They don't receive the instructions of the Bible as God's absolute truth. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. For when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also when you believe. If you don't believe it's God's word, it ain't going to work in you. Now with that in mind, these guys love the instruction of men. 
more than the instructions of God. They hate reproof. They're brutish like we saw last week. And what they wind up doing is setting themselves up as the final authority instead of the Bible. And they're established by their wickedness. And God takes their own wicked heart and deceives them, as I've showed you in Ezekiel. Now, with that in mind, let's look at our second set of verses today in Proverbs chapter 12, uh, verse 3. We'll see how far we get. But verse 3 says, A man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous shall not be moved. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We thank you for the good people that have come out. We pray, your Father, your blessings upon our time and all that we do today. We love you. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you for all we do. In Jesus' name, and shake we ask it. Amen. Now, we're going to look at two more key words today. The first word we're going to look at is the word established. And the second word we're going to look at is the word rooted or root, the root of the righteous. But we're going to look at the word established first. Now, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, and these are two great verses, he tells that church that he's sending them Timothy, our brother and a minister of God and a fellow laborer in the gospel to establish the church in Thessalonica and to comfort them in their faith. Then he tells them over in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, that he's longed to see these Christians, that he may impart to them some spiritual gift to the end that he may, they may be established. And the real issue today with God's people, the church, is the fact that they, in their faith, they may be saved, they're on their way to heaven, but they've never been established in anything. Most of God's people don't know anything about the Bible. Most of God's people don't know why they believe what they believe when they do believe something in the Bible, and many a times they don't even know for sure uh, what they believe uh, in any case about anything. And in most cases, they certainly don't have a passion or a love to learn. Every, every, everything is made easy for them. They don't need the Bible anymore. Man has replaced it for you. One of the greatest tragedies today. We make a joke around here about the churches that have the big screens, you know. We got one. It's right here. We just got to take that down. We got everything we need. We laugh about it. We joke about it. You know, it's kind of a funny joke around here. Uh, but it, it, whether you know it or not, those things undermining do a terrible thing they'll put the songs up on the screen so you don't have to get a song book in front of you anymore and sing you don't have to you're hearing a sermon ever again now now open your bibles this morning because it's on the screen you'll never find anybody ever saying in most cases now turn to this passage and look at this they just flash it on the screen there's a bible in the rack in front of you so when you're getting ready in the morning, you just simply look at your Bible and say, oh, I don't need mine. There's going to be one there. Now, I don't know what you know about human nature. But the Bible ought to be the only reason you're here today. And if I ever get to the place where I start taking the emphasis off the Bible so you don't have to bring it, you don't have to mark it, you don't have to open it. You don't have to turn to it. You better boot me so far, take me an airmail stamp to get back. The only thing we're here for today is the Bible. We have a pulpit. You'll find that pulpit back in the book of Nehemiah when they want to get up and preach to the people. In Baptist churches down through history, you go to a Presbyterian church, the pulpits are hanging up here someplace or over on this side. You'll find that in Baptist churches for the last 
1,500 years when they got themselves organized and got going as Baptists, you're going to find that the pulpit was always in the center of the church. You know why that is? It's out of Nehemiah because they wanted everybody to know that the centerpiece of that church is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, we've got rid of the pulpit today. Pastors now teach their people sitting on stools. We got one in the back. You can try it sometime if you want. Go to the first one. The second one is the ladies. I was afraid some of you didn't get that as it came out. But you know what we've done? We've streamlined churches, church services. We've streamlined it and made it so slick, we've streamlined the Bible right out of it. And then, oh, let me get going on this. Study Bibles. Now, you probably are sitting here this morning and you have a study Bible. I'm not fighting with you. I I mean, used the way that they're intended to be used, they're okay. I think the old Schofield reference Bible is probably, for 100 years, has been one of the greatest study Bibles there is. I I understand. But everybody's got one. You had a Ryrie study Bible. You had the Schofield. Then you had a new Schofield, which is worthless. You had a Danks. You had, uh, and then then all the big guys started coming out. All the big professional guys that everybody looks to and thinks they know the Bible, they all put out a study Bible. Now, to them, it's all a money-making deal. Because in most of their churches, they know that they got a bunch of people who wouldn't lift a finger to study the Word of God, but they'll spend $100 to buy a Bible that's got somebody else's notes in it so they don't have to study it themselves. I know how human nature is. And I've told you a million times, the best study Bible you ever have is the one you have that's yours that you put your own notes in. It's just that simple. And they've streamlined them way right out of the Word of God. Now, today I want to talk about four areas that I work as pastor here to ground you in and to root you in and to establish you in because I think they're vital. And these four areas are absolutely essential to your Christian life, and you need at some point in your life to look back and say, okay, I'm established. Now, I know that some of you are new in the faith, some of you are growing. I get that. I'm saying this needs to be a goal in your life, but it'll be a goal you'll never get as long as you take a blasé approach to learning. Now, the word established in the Bible is a, is, is a great word. It's defined as to set, to fix, to settle permanently, to make firm, to anchor something that was wavering or doubtful or weak. And if anybody today needs to be established, it will be God's people. And the first thing I want to talk about or the first aspect that you need at some point in your life is to be established in who you are in Christ. This will be your foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 says the day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation is Jesus Christ. The rest of your life, you build on that foundation, but you build toward being established. Psalms chapter 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. You need to have your going in life established. Psalms 112 verse 5 says, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be everlasting remembrance. 
He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see the desire upon his enemies. Now, at some point, this is where you need to get. You need to get to the point where you understand how God looks at you. That's important because we all do dumb things. And we all do stupid things. And you've got to learn at some point in your life, when you do something wrong, how do you handle it? What do you deal with it like? What do you, where do you take it? You've got to learn how the fact that how God looks at you. You've got to realize that before you were saved, God looked at you as a sinner. But then you've got to realize and understand that after you get saved, God never looks at you as a sinner again. You need to be established in that. Then you need to see how you need to look at him, the Lord. He's not some grandfather up there in the sky that's sitting in a rocking chair with a long white beard. He's not some God that's impervious to what's going on down here. He's not some God that just kind of sits back and lets things happen or puts things in motion and then just forgets about them. You need to understand these things. Everything in your Christian life and your relationship with him will depend on it. Being established will start right here with this concept, who you are really in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, if you'd ask the average Christian that's been saved five years or more, I always throw that in there, give everybody first five years as a period just to get your feet on the ground. And you'd ask them what really changed about them the day they got saved, they wouldn't have any idea. I mean, what changed about you the moment the Holy Spirit of God came inside you? I mean, the split second when you asked Christ, what was different about you before you asked Christ into your life than the split second that you did? What changed about your body? Anything? What changed with your soul? Anything? What changed in your spirit? Anything? First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. He says, behold, all things become new. Now, what are those new things? Notice things is plural. What are they? Do you know? We have discipleship here, and we encourage everybody that gets saved to go through discipleship. It's the basic foundational thing that really gives you some key understanding, and it's always available to anybody. We've got a number of people to do it. But I want to tell you something. As important as that is, I think the greatest series of studies we've ever put together here that gets taught all the time, and it kind of just developed itself into discipleship too, is a study we have on the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And we have some really good people, men and women in this church, who can really teach that material very well. After salvation and the basic discipleship one, this class will be the absolute bedrock of you building a relationship with Christ based on you beginning to understand what changed about you the day you got saved and why from the second before to the second after you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things became new and learning what those things are. The tragedy today is the average pastor, the average Christian, the average Bible teacher has absolutely no clue what they are. Well, the second thing, child of God needs to be established in the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 says, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace 
if not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Proverbs 16, 1 through 3 says, The preparations of the heart in man, and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. You know, at some point in our Christian life, we need to start to put our Bibles together. Did you notice 16.1 is probably one of the greatest keys in the Bible to do that? It says the preparation of the heart in man and the answer in the tongue is from the Lord. You get your heart in the right place and get the right attitude of heart about that book, the answers will come from God. We have men and women in this church who really know their Bibles very well. And we have more learning it all the time, men and women who come in and come here. We've got them moving from Washington State, coming over from Utah, coming up from wherever, because they want to learn the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14, the book of Ephesians was written to the New Testament church by Paul. It's really the handbook or instructions on not what the church should believe. That's the book of Romans. But Ephesians, rather, is the book of instruction written on what the church should be, not what it believes. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, he says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which the head, even Christ. Verse 14 says, No more being a child when it comes to the doctrine and knowing the Bible. You see, a child will believe whatever he's told. A child is very naive. A child is very trusting, too trusting. A child believes that whatever he's told, so he's easily manipulated, he's easily deceived, he's easily exploited. A child can't discern truth from error. A child will make bad choices. He sees a handgun... He doesn't know its full potential. He thinks it's a toy from what he's seen on television. So he picks it up, makes a bad choice to play with it, and tragically shoots his sister or his brother or himself. And when it comes down to the tons of heresy and bad teachings today, the average child of God is tossed to and fro and blown in the wind of bad doctrine. Paul says he's carried away by every wind of doctrine. I've always thought that was interesting because in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when the Holy Spirit of God comes, it comes as a mighty rushing wind. And it shows you that when the devil imitates the Holy Spirit of God in bad doctrine, it comes as wind, a false wind. And you have it everywhere. Internet Christianity. Oh, man. You beside the goofy stuff that's on that Internet. Christian conspiracy theories. Man, I get two or three emails a week. Somebody wanting me to look at this conspiracy. I got one last week. Guy believed, saved man, believing that at Richard Gebauer's Air Force Base, 
They've set up stockades and pens and tents for to lock up all the Christians and put them under lock and key on that vast Air Force base up there and the CIA and the governments behind it to get rid of all the Christians. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> now, you know, I know that's not true. Do you really want to know how I know that's not true? Obviously, from the obvious. I have the average 5, 10 Christians you meet aren't worth locking up. They ain't a threat to anybody. Everybody wants something new today. Every man is stupid stupid teaching that comes down the line, they fall for. Something new. Wow, look at this. That Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new out there. It is is because you don't know your Bible. Oh, I got tongues. I speak in tongues. But then there's the tongues of angels. Baptism of the Holy Ghost. Lose your salvation. No rapture. That's a big one today. The ashes of the red heifer. Oh, you got to have the ashes of the red heifer. Blood moons all over the place. What really happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, who doesn't know that? Indiana Jones is in Washington, D.C. in a warehouse. The Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank from, over in Scotland someplace. Oh, I get it all the time. Where do you think the Holy Grail is? I type back, I got it. Drink my coffee out of it every morning. The junk is endless. Somebody says, have you ever found the lost books of the Bible? What about the book of Enoch? When the Passion of the Christ came out or the crucifixion, last movie that came out, <clears throat> they all got on there and they said it's based on the gospel. The internet was flooded. 50 gospels out there today. And the gospel of Judas. And they were coming back because Judas was the bad guy saying, read the gospel of Judas. He got a bad rap. He was really a good guy. I had a guy, all six or seven months ago, called me on the phone and he says, you know we're not, the real Jews over in Jerusalem are not the real Jews. I said, no, I I didn't know that. He says, yes. He says, we're the real Jews. I says, that's incredible. Really? I said, I've never heard that before. Well, brother, I've been enlightened. Now, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? Because I'm really into this. He said, absolutely. He said, I said, when did they, when did they, when did they, I said, when did they, when did they get lost? He said, well, in 606 B.C. when Shennacherib came down and Nebuchadnezzar came in, they scattered him. They migrated all over the world. And then later on, they migrated into in England. And then they came over here. And now they're over here. We're over here. I'm a Jew. You're a Jew. We're all Jews. I said, that's incredible. I said, you believe the Bible? Oh, absolutely. I said, you believe Jesus was who he said he was? Oh, absolutely. I said, well, then answer this. If they were dispersed in 606 and all over the world, and the Jews in Jerusalem aren't the right Jews, did Jesus make a mistake in the first coming of Christ when he went to the Jews in Jerusalem? He never thought about that. 
And I said, if that's the case, and they were the real Jews there, history's traceable. Where did show me where they went away? Was Hitler wrong when he gassed six million of them? Was Titus wrong in 70 AD when he came down? Those are historical facts. Idiots. Absolute idiots. And the only people dumber than they are are the people that believe it. Verse 14 says, The slight of man and cunning craftiness, wherefore they lie to we and to deceive. And you bet they do. 24-7, man. And God's people just fall for it all the time. You know why? They're not established in the Word of God. Verse 15 says, We are to speak the truth in love and grow up into Him. Not unto Him, into Him. The goal of your life is to be just like Jesus Christ. In every way, shape, or form. But you know what's wrong with Christianity today? We got the people who don't go the places they shouldn't go. Don't say the words they shouldn't say. Don't, no, not in public anyhow. Don't do the things that, that Christians are supposed to do. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Next Sunday, I want to have a Bob Alexander lookalike contest. And the five or six of you are going to get into that. And you're going to, you're going to prepare all week. You're going to listen to my tapes all week long and get my mannerisms down. You're going to get everything I down do. You're going to get your hair cut, grow a mustache. You're going to, you're going to do everything I can, you can do to, you know, to, to look like me and to mimic me. And you're going to try to fool everybody up here uh, with a Bob Alexander look like contest. And, and I'm going to be hidden in the back someplace. And you're, going to, you're not going to know if I'm really up here or not. And next week, it's incredible. Wheels looks just like me anyhow. <laughs> right, son? That's right. You betcha. You do a great job. Five guys are up here, and you cannot tell them apart. They got my mannerisms down. And finally, you try to trick him every way. Finally, you bring my wife and put her right in front, and you say, Barb, pick the real Bob Alexander out of there. And she says, I'll be honest, I've been married to him for 55 years, and I'll I tell you, I, I, I just, uh, see, I didn't remember how long it was, so I made it longer and make it shorter would never work. So, and I, 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 can't, I can't tell. So you all pick and choose, and you all pick and choose, and lo and behold, Drake wins the contest. That's right. But you know what? Even though he looks like me, and he dresses like me, and he talks like me, and he has my mannerisms down, he's still not me. Because the real thing that will keep anybody who wants to imitate me from ever really being me is you can get everything I do down, but the thing you've got to get to be me is my mind. And if you never get my mind, you'll never be me. And you can dress like Christ, you can talk like Christ, you can be all the things that Christ is. But until you get his mind, you're just a cheap imitation of Bob Alexander. And that's where Christianity is today. Grounded and established in the Word of God. Every time the Lord Jesus was faced with a situation, he went to the Bible. When the devil tried to get him, he simply says, it is written. When the scribes and Pharisees came after him, he says, have you not read? When somebody didn't want to believe it, he says, tell them, Cal, what I say? You do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. <laughs> Third thing. 
child of God shall be established in his home. Psalms 103, verse 21 through 28 says, To declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way he shortened my days. I said, oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days, thy years or throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and the years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Your family is the guarantee of the continuance and the furtherance of the gospel that started in you when you got saved. Totally, solely depends on the establishment of your house. There should be no end to the years of your ministry when you have a legacy of children and grandchildren carrying what you started in their lives on. And the end result, verse 21, is to declare the name of the Lord in Zion. In any family, Christian family, you have three main components that need to be established. You have the role of the father. He has a specific role that he has to follow. You have the role of the mother. She has a specific role that she has to follow. And you have a role of the children. They have a specific role that they have to follow. The establishment of these three will fix a wavering family because it will establish them. These three will make firm the things of the Lord uh, to the children that will ensure uh, that they continue the ministry in future generations. Giving your children a vision of God and what he has for them. Not by telling them, but by mom and dad through their role models living out the example before them. Giving them the instructions. The instructions in the Bible are the role of a father, the role of a mother, and the role of children. The instructions of five steps of, 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 of training up a child right. And each step will come with its own set of instructions. You lose a child because you get saved late in life or don't get plugged into late in life. It's not always the end of the world. There's five steps that you go through to get that child back. Each one will, again, have its own set of instructions. Proverbs eleven twenty four. we saw a couple weeks ago, you trouble your house, you reap the wind. I've seen families with a mom and dad who turned out kids that had no desire to go to church, no desire for the things of God, and I've actually watched in that particular spot where that mom and dad right there in that family was the end, the absolute end of any furtherance of the gospel going anywhere. Every generation will get worse. A couple of Thursday nights ago, we talked about it. We've talked about it much. Well, the fourth thing, the child of God should be established in his New Testament local church. Psalms 90, verses 16 and 17, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands. Upon us, yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. This church is the work of our hands, and it needs to be established in your life. Acts 16, verses 4 and 5. And as they went through the cities and delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. 
And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. And you know, a couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked the question, and we talked about the importance of the New Testament local church. It's the only institution instituted by God and ordained by God in the New Testament. All things, everything in your life needs to revolve around uh, that, the local church. Three things spiritually that you should, you should always center your life around in a spiritual sense. I'm not talking physical, now I'm talking spiritual. One is God, two is the Word of God, and three is the local New Testament church. You can't have one without the other. You can't have two and leave one out. You have all three or you have none of them. The only institution ordained by God in the New Testament, all things, everything in our lives should go through that structure. The New Testament local church is God's structure by which you establish yourself in the ministry. It's the structure used by God to save you. Now, I know the physical church can't save you. I'm talking about the spiritual church, being born again into, into, into God's church. The New Testament local church will equip you. The New Testament, New Testament local church will train you. And the New Testament local church will establish you. The New Testament local church in Acts, we know, is the model of the church at Antioch. And, and, you know, and I'm always looking for models in the Bible. And in Acts chapter 13, I think, is one of the greatest models and one of the most amazing models of how important the local New Testament church is of us submitting ourselves to this structure as God's institution. Now, it says in Acts chapter 13 that there were in the church at, that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simon, which was called Niger, Lucas of Serene, and Manian, uh, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, Saul was later Paul. Uh, and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, uh, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they had laid their hands on them and sent them away. You know, about old eight or nine, ten years ago, I don't know, when I was reading that one day, I saw one of the most incredible, amazing examples of how important a local church is. And I've really never given it to you before. Uh, uh, just something that I just, I've always thought about, kept to myself, and always focused on myself. But I want you to notice something. After Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and that takes place in Acts chapter 9, we kind of lose Paul for the next 10 or 12 years. He's absent. And then finally when he does show up, the next time we see him, he's at the church at Antioch. Now, in those missing years, I don't know if you know this or not, God got Paul after he got saved. He took him through discipleship one and two. He took him through the whole thing. And what he did is he gave Paul the revelation of the New Testament local church. Now, we know who know the Bible that the Bible says that was a mystery that God revealed to no man. At Galatians chapter 1, I think it's a verse 7 or 17 down through there, he takes Paul up in Mount Sinai in Arabia. And Paul spends three and a half years up there by his own admission. He takes Paul right up where he took Moses. When he gave Moses the Ten Commandments to establish a nation of Israel, he took him in Arabia on Mount Sinai. When he hunted Paul to give him the declaration for the New Testament establishment of the church, he took him to the same spot, to the same place, gave him the New Testament commission. And the Bible's very clear. Bible's very clear that no other man got this revelation. Galatians 1.12, Paul says... God gave it to me alone. I got it from no man. No man brought it to me. 
God didn't send somebody with the message. He said, I didn't read it out of the scriptures. He says, God took me up on that mountain and gave it to me and only me. And me, I, I'm going to declare to the Gentile world what the church is. Well, you'd have thought that he'd have been so hot to go on that that he'd have just got him a big bus, painted his name on it, and headed on down the road starting churches. You know what he did? After God called him and only him, gave the message to him and only him, and gave him that direct revelation, he shows up in a local New Testament church. And he submits himself to that church teaching the Bible and going along and helping that church grow, and he patiently waits. Now, wait a minute. He's got the message to start all the churches in the world. But he goes to this church, he submits himself, and he waits. He waits till the Holy Spirit of God moves through the leadership and says, separate Paul and Barnabas. He didn't go in there and say, boys... I got the message from God. Now, I know he didn't give it to you, but he gave it to me. And I got a job to do, so I'm just stopping in here for a little bit to fill up my canteen and maybe get a couple of loaves of bread. I got a mission. Uh Uh-uh. He knew how important the church was, and he knew that if he was ever going to establish the concept of the church, he had to submit himself to it. Did you hear what I just said? So the man with a great mission to the world goes to a church and then waits till the Holy Spirit of God tells the leadership that says, Paul, we think you need to go. Well, didn't he already know that? Submission. He understood the importance of the New Testament local church. Even though God had told him on Sinai, he still sets the example and joins a church and waits till the Holy Spirit of God moves through the leadership. Now, are we any better than Paul? Have we got a greater Paul? You got a greater calling, do you? When you're established within a New Testament local church, you'll be established also in the eyes of others. People will seek you out. They'll want you to work with them. They'll want you to disciple them. They'll see how you have labored and see what the people that you have produced and turned out. It's absolutely incredible. Now, the reason for us to be established is so that we, when it comes to the things of God, we're unmovable. 12.3 says, but the root of the righteous shall not be moved. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, in in a combat situation, they have what they call offensive positions and defensive positions. The greatest defendable position in a combat situation will be what they call the fixed position, where you're dug in solid. As my old drill sergeant used to say, like an Alabama tick. You have complete control of the ground all around you. You have the best defendable position. Nowhere in history is this illustrated more than in the 1942 early battles of World War II on the Solomon Islands in Guadalcanal. When the Americans just had a foothold on that little island, Guadalcanal. 
And the airfield, Henderson Field, was vital to keep the Japanese from attacking into Australia and taking over the whole Pacific. And those little contingents of Marines were holding on to that thing, and the Japanese, the Japanese outnumbered them five to one. They had no Navy to back them up. They had no food. They had no water. They had nothing. They were on their own. And the Japanese outnumbered them greatly. But the thing they had in their favor was they dug in and had a fixed position. This is where you first heard the great term, bonsai. Those Japanese would line up four or 5,000 at a time and come in waves on those Marine fixed positions and the Marines with three or four machine guns and 40 or 50 riflemen just cut them down. And in the morning, you couldn't walk over the Japanese bodies. There were so many. And the next night, they'd bonsai again, and they'd cut them down. The next night, they'd cut them down. Pretty soon, we need some more Japs. And they held on to Guadalcanal. And the fixed position is what saved them. It gave them complete control. And in the spiritual warfare in Christianity, your best defensive position is a spiritual warfare is the fixed position. You keep control of all the area around you because you use the book to define the battle. You never lose control. You're dug in. You're unmovable with what you believe. You're steadfast in your doctrine. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 and 19 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 and 8 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. When you're rooted in the book, when you're established in the Word of God, in your church, in your family, nothing will move you. You're steadfast in your doctrine. You know what you believe, and you know why you believe it. You not only know why you believe it, but you can go to the mat with anybody with that Bible. You also know why you believe it, and based on knowing who you are in Christ. Now through the book that God gave you, now through the church that God gave you, now through the instructions that God gave you, you are established in the Word of God and the Christian faith. And you're never going to be moved out of that. You see, this is the absolute importance for a child of God today to establish himself and be rooted and unmovable, steadfast in what we believe. And that's what this church is all about. I showed you three or four weeks ago, maybe a month or so now, we talked about, I took you back and I showed you how we, where we came from and where we're at today and how God is built. And, I, and we, I gave you a motto for our church. And that motto, you see people wearing them on their shirts. It's up here, A-A-A, with a bar through it, zero. That's an old motto out of the 39th Infantry Division in World War II that means anything, anytime, anywhere, bar nothing. And that became the motto of this church. That we have built men and women to the point and continue to build men and women to the point and we'll build you as men and women to the point that you can go anywhere, anytime, any place for God bar nothing. It's what it takes. 
It's a sacrificial Christianity over a convenient Christianity. Well, I gave you the motto. We've always got guys and gals in this church that always take it an extra step. And this week I got a text from our famous French evangelist, John Bousquet, who is my right-hand man on research. Anything I need, I call him. He's dug my books back there, and he's invaluable. And he said, I thought you'd like this. I put this together. This is, we got a creed. Uh, we got a motto for our church. Now's the creed. And I made a copy for everybody that wants it. Do not take one if you don't agree with this creed. This is not for your talking points. In times of uncertainty, there was a special breed of Christian ready to answer our Lord's call. A common man with a common Bible and an uncommon desire to succeed. Forged by adversity, he stands alongside the countless martyrs who have paid the ultimate price for the Lord. I am that man. My Bible is my symbol of honor and heritage bestowed upon me by the martyrs that have gone before. It is the truth that I have sworn to protect by choosing the Bible I accept the responsibility of my chosen profession and way of life. It is a privilege that I must earn every day. My loyalty to God and His holy words is beyond reproach. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow soldiers, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I do not advertise the nature of my work nor seek recognition for my actions. I voluntarily accept the inherited hazards of my profession, placing the salvation of others before my own comforts. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. The ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstances, sets me apart from other men. Uncompromising integrity is my standard. My character and honor are steadfast. My word is my bond. We expect to lead and be led. In absence of orders, I will take charge, lead others to accomplish the mission. I lead by example in all situations. I will never quit. I preserve and thrive on adversity. My Savior expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies through His Word. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. We demand discipline. We expect innovation. The souls of the unsaved and the success of our mission depend on me. My training is never complete. We train for war and fight to win. I stand ready to bring the full spectrum of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and the goals established by my Savior. The execution of my duties will be swift and violent when required, yet guided by the very principles of the Holy Word of God. Brave men have fought and died that I might have a Bible that I can love and teach and preach. It is a heritage that I am bound to uphold. And the worst of conditions, the legacy of my Savior steadies my resolve and silently guides my every deed. I will not fail. Now that is what our church is right there. That is the creed that we build men and women that can stand on their own two feet, established who they are in Christ, established in the Word of God, established in their home, and established in the ministry of this church. Father, we thank you and pray.